Hi, this is Ellen Gear, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Robertson with a reminder that we will play part two of our conversation with Veronica Red from The Young and the Restless beginning at the top of the hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, joining us via Zoom is Phil Rosenzweig. Phil is the author of Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, the first biography of Reginald Rose, one of the greatest writers in the history of television, and the backstory of his magnum opus, Twelve Angry Men, Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, available wherever books are sold through Fordham University Press. You can also find it Amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Before he got his foot in network television, Rose's first well-paying job was as a copywriter for an advertising company. And so you don't spell this out per se, but reading in between the lines, even as he would make his big ticket statements through his work on television, he always sort of understood the, at least he had an understanding of the marketing of television, and he had an understanding of compromise to a degree in in television that, say, Rod Serling never did. And I'm a fan of Rod Serling. But in a lot of ways, I would argue that Rose understood how television worked in ways Serling never did. So you've you've talked about a couple things there. One is his background in advertising. He was not, by the way, a very well-paid or very happy copywriter. Uh, he did that for a little bit. And as soon as he was making enough money on television, he, he stopped doing that. But I think the, the point you're making about um, compromise, he was a little more willing to work successfully within the constraints imposed on him than a Serling who was much quicker to rebel against them. Um, I think it was partly just personality, but Rose was pragmatic. And yeah. he said, look, if, if they're not going to let me say what I want to say this way, I'll find a way to say it that way. I am going to say it. And we are going to talk about some really important stuff. But, you know, why why make a big flap about something that, that is going to be counterproductive? So he was able to address the issue of abortion in 1962. This is 11 years before Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. and got it on network TV. He was the this was with the defenders. It yep. was the very first year mm-hmm. and the sponsors ran from it. The three main sponsors said, we're not going to do this show. And they lined up another sponsor. But CBS actually said if there had been no sponsors, we would have done it. A couple of years later, the first drama to speak directly about the blacklist. And this was in 1964. Twelve years later, a movie comes out, The Front, with Woody Allen. It's kind of a, a bittersweet comedy looking back at the blacklist from a safe distance. In 1964, this was not from a safe distance. There were a lot of people who were still very much scarred by this. So he compromised in some ways, but he was very adamant that he wanted to address certain issues, and I I think quite courageous in doing so. And another example of how he was ahead of his time, one of the early plays he wrote for Studio One, I'm forgetting the title, it ultimately had to do with the um, isolation of an ex-convict in a neighborhood yeah. community. It was not uh, – uh, uh, Rose originally wanted to use that play to explore racial prejudice. He got pushed back right away. He changed the ethnicity of the protagonist and in so doing actually made the play even better 
as a work of television because it became universal and everybody understood what he was talking about. Yeah, it's an extraordinary story. This was his second original one-hour drama that aired in early 1954. It was called Thunder on Sycamore Street. He had been inspired by real events in 1951 in Cicero, Illinois, when a black family moved into an all-white neighborhood and they had the so-called Cicero riots. Thousands of white neighbors just not going to stand for this and they surrounded the building and caused all kinds of violence. Rose wanted to expose this. He wanted to dramatize this a few years later. But when he outlined it, CBS said, look, we can't do anything about discrimination against Negroes. Uh, that's not going to fly. Westinghouse wasn't going to do it. Um, affiliates across the South weren't going to do it. And, and by the way, this is 1954. This is before Brown versus Education. This is a year before the Montgomery uh, bus boycott that brought Martin Luther King Jr. to prominence. So Rose was really ahead of his time here. So he said, okay, if I can't do a Negro, what about a Catholic? What about a Jew? They said no. Finally, they settled on the family of an ex-convict, uh, a group for which there's no, there's no kind of compelling interest group. And and Serling said to him later, you know, look, they made you make this change. And he says, yeah, but I did it. And when it aired, nobody who watched it really thought this was about an ex-con. Yeah. Everybody who watched it understood it's about some minority group. And he learned that lesson when he then wrote 12 Angry Men, because you never know the ethnicity of the defendant. Now, in the movie version, we see him briefly and he looks like He's Hispanic, maybe Puerto Rican. But that was Sidney Lumet's choice in casting. There is nothing in the play, nothing in the Reginald Rose play, that says anything about the ethnic group of the defendant. And because of that, it's more powerful. Because if it was just about this group or that group, you'd say, oh, well, that's just those groups. But if it's just if it's about them, whoever them is... It's universal in its appeal. And that was a lesson that he learned from Thunder on Sycamore Street that I think he applied very powerfully later on. Phil Rosenzweig is with us via Zoom. Phil is the author of Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, a combination biography of Reginald Rose and biography of Twelve Angry Men itself that also explores the early days of television the effect of the blacklist on movies and television in the early 1950s and the many ways in which the blacklist brought together many of the key components of the 12 Angry Men movie, the rise of united artists in the motion picture industry, how television plays such as 12 Angry Men became legitimate source material for motion pictures, and how the success of the Defenders television series in 1961 changed the course of Reginald Rose's life. Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, available wherever books are sold through Fordham University Press and Amazon.com. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. How did Henry Fonda become attached to uh, Twelve Angry Men? Well, that's another story that um, I, I found something different than the conventional wisdom. The conventional wisdom is that he wanted to make the movie. He had probably seen the television drama, wanted to make the movie, went to studios, couldn't get backing, and so produced it on his own. Not true. Uh, I know that he didn't see the movie, uh, he didn't see the television show when it was aired live in September of 1954 for the simple reason that he was on a naval vessel in the mi middle of the Pacific Ocean filming the movie Mr. Roberts. But like a lot of actors, he was interested in uh, 
forming his own production company. Burt Lancaster had done this to great success. Others had as well. And in early 1955, not very well known, he signed a six-picture deal to produce with United Artists. He would star in three of them, and then there would be three others. And United Artists then was feeding him ideas for properties. He was in Los Angeles in May of 1955 doing a live version of The Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Bogart reprising his famous role from 1936. And while he was in L.A., United Artists said, come on by, we want to show you something. And they showed him a kinescope of 12 Angry Men. And Fonda realized this was a character that was just perfect for him. He had played Tom Joad in um, Grapes of Wrath. He had played a fellow uh, standing up uh, against vigilantes in the Oxbow incident. He had played uh, young Abe Lincoln. And, of course, um, Doug Roberts in Mr. Roberts, the same kind of um, – plain-speaking American with integrity, and Juror 8 was exactly that. So he then approached Rose, and they produced it together. Uh, United Artists put up the funding, but United Artists said, well, we don't really want to pay a lot for this, so you're going to have to defer all of your fees. Fonda deferred all of his. Rose was paid something early, but got a lot on the back end as well. Uh, and that's eventually how it was, how it was produced. They filmed it in New York. New York was trying to bring back some movie making that, of course, mostly had gone to the West Coast. And um, they filmed it in a studio on 10th Avenue, the old Fox Movie Tone studios that are not there anymore. But that's where they made it. You mentioned that as part of the deep dive you took into learning everything you could about the production of 12 Angry Men, you mentioned some of your research in New York. I know that at one point you came out here and spent some time at the Motion Picture Library in Beverly Hills, which is like Nirvana for any any researcher of film and television has to spend time there, you know, because yep. <laughs> it just it's just not only is it is it not only is it a treasure trove of information you can't find anywhere else but the but the librarians to to who work there they're they're they are tops they take care they they anticipate everything you can possibly think of they're just great to, they're just great to work with but you found a lot of the memos and the inner office correspondence which is a way to bring to life some of the people that you could not talk to because they're deceased now but one of the people that I'm thinking of I think his name is George Justin Yes, that's right. He worked in movies and television, you know, uh, and he worked in a lot of other movies and television, but he he's one of the real characters in the production of the movie because we, we mentioned that this was a low-budget motion picture, and he would remind cast and crew of, of that every day, but he was very funny in how he did that. Yes, he was the production supervisor. Sometimes he's listed as the associate producer, but he was the guy who made sure that everything was in place, everything stayed on budget, that they knocked off the scenes while the Met is figuring out how to direct them. Justin's job is to keep things going. Uh, he later, he was a New Yorker, and he wanted very much to revive movie making in New York. In the 1960s, he did come out to California. Movie, movie viewers will know him as the barber who tells the dirty joke to Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. Barney, the, uh, the barber, I, you know, he was working on that film. He was uh, 
he was in Hollywood at the time and he had, you know, I think he was production supervisor on Chinatown or had a role kind of like that. And he worked on The Graduate. He worked on a number of things later on. A very, very, very much a true Hollywood character. One of the many characters you'll meet in the backstory of Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. Excellent book by our guest, Phil Rosenzweig. Phil will be back next week for part two of our conversation. We will talk about the work of cinematographer Boris Kaufman on the motion picture version of 12 Angry Men, as well as how the movie provided a springboard for many actors who are now familiar faces on television today. All that and more, we play part two of our conversation with Phil Rosenzweig next week on TV Confidential. In the meantime, Reginald Rose and the Journey of 12 Angry Men, available wherever books are sold through Fordham University Press, also available Amazon.com, where books are sold online. When we come back, we'll play part two of our conversation with Veronica Red of The Young and the Restless. Then we will welcome back our friend Kat Kramer. All that and more. We come back for hour number two of TV Confidential. Stay with us. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at tvconfidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.